North Korea launched another missile this morning. North Korea fired a missile that flew over Japan. It's not a matter of uh, if, but when. Kim Jong-un is going to be able to range the United States. A new missile launched being called a breakthrough, a successful test of an intercontinental ballistic missile, possibly capable of reaching Alaska. Not just Alaska and Hawaii, but the lower 48 with an intercontinental ballistic nuclear missile. The latest move by North Korea involving another intercontinental ballistic missile. That's going to happen at some point. North Korean media said the missile could carry a, quote, large-sized heavy nuclear warhead. He's going to have that capability. North Korea. North Korea. North Korea. A Pentagon spokesman said the U.S. military did not employ an elaborate missile defense shield because it did not threaten the U.S. homeland. I can tell you that the current ballistic missile defense system meets today's threat. Lots of people have said this. There's, there's a long record of people saying the GMD works against the current North Korean threat. When you hear the president say that we have missiles that can knock out a missile in the air 97% of the time, that that isn't true, not really in a relevant way. The National Academy of Sciences came out with a study that said basically the existing missile, the ground-based interceptor system, is deeply flawed, is technologically troubled. They recommended a brand new interceptor, brand new radars, a brand new site. And here's the administration doing what many members of Congress wanted to do, pouring new money into the same old interceptors. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation in Washington, D.C. I'm James McKeon, a policy analyst here at the Center. A couple of months ago, the Trump administration released its long-delayed Missile Defense Review, a document that lays out the administration's missile defense priorities. We won't have time to cover everything, but the review is full of very ambitious and, if we're honest, likely unrealistic ideas about future missile defense technologies. As we poured through the document, we thought it might be a good idea to take a step or many steps back. Let's start with the basics. So here's a simple question. In fact, the simple question on missile defense. Does it work? You could also ask it like this. If North Korea launched a functioning intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, at the United States, could the U.S. military shoot it down? It's difficult to find reliable public polling on this question, but in our admittedly anecdotal experience, a lot of people think the answer is yes, absolutely. Here, for example, is one testimonial from a U.S. citizen. We have missiles that can knock out a missile in the air 97% of the time, and if you send two of them, it's going to get knocked out. 97%? Okay, this needs even more steps back. How did we get to a point where the President of the United States can make such an inaccurate claim? Because the truth is, as we'll explain soon, our national missile defense program fails as often as it succeeds, in the most highly scripted test environments imaginable. So a quick history lesson. Let's go back to 1972. This is the year when the film The Godfather was released, when Bruce Springsteen put together the E Street Band when the U.S. and Soviet Union had a combined 41,000 nuclear warheads. You heard that right, I promise. And when this gentleman was President of the United States. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. 
We tend to remember President Nixon's downfall rather than his accomplishments, but he did actually have some impressive policy achievements. He established relations with China, he started the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. And most importantly for this podcast, he signed the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, or ABM Treaty. The governments of the United States and the Soviet Union, after reviewing the course of their talks on the limitation of strategic armaments, have agreed to concentrate this year on working out an agreement for the limitation of the deployment of anti-ballistic missile systems, ABMs. Okay, another step back. What is a ballistic missile and what is an anti-ballistic missile? To explain a ballistic missile, in this case an intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, let's consult an analyst. When launched, these missiles shoot into the atmosphere, fly through space via gravity at speeds of about 15,000 miles per hour, and then land at their target across the world within about 30 minutes. Wow, that guy really knows what he's talking about. By the way, that's a clip from a previous and one of our most popular episodes called The Nuclear Triad. Check it out if you want to know just about everything about the U.S. strategic nuclear arsenal. While today the U.S. and Russia have hundreds of ICBMs equipped with nuclear warheads, they had a ton more during the Cold War. And when both sides started researching technology to try to intercept those missiles, or anti-ballistic missile technology, an already tense situation got even worse. Here's why. If both sides deployed missile defense interceptors, even if they didn't work, the other side would assume that they did work, and would naturally try to defeat them. How do you do that? It's simple. Build more missiles than the other side has interceptors. So you can imagine what this would look like. One side builds a bunch of interceptors, the other side builds a bunch of missiles to overwhelm the interceptors, then the first side builds even more interceptors, followed by more missiles, and this would also be happening vice versa, and you get the idea. The ABM treaty was important because both the United States and the Soviet Union realized that without it, they were headed into an arms race. The People who supported the ABM Treaty in the Soviet Union and in the United States understood that the more defensive systems one country had, the more the other country would just be forced to build more and more offensive systems so as to be able to overwhelm the defenses. And that would enlarge the arms race. That's Philip Coyle. He's the senior science fellow here at the center, and he had a storied career in government. He was an assistant secretary of defense, where he oversaw the testing and evaluation of Department of Defense programs, including missile defense programs. And before that, he spent three decades at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, where he retired as laboratory associate director. For 30 years, as long as the ABM treaty was in effect, it worked. Okay, I'm going to forego the major details of the ABM treaty, but the most important point is that it heavily restricted the number of missile defense interceptors both sides could employ. The ABM Treaty had fairly broad bipartisan support until 1983. What the president proposed this evening could lead to one of the most radical turnabouts of our time in strategic nuclear policy. Tonight, President Reagan turned 30 years of strategic thinking on its head. Let me share with you a vision of the future which offers hope. It is that we embark on a program to counter the awesome Soviet missile threat with measures that are defensive. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge 
that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil or that of our allies. The program President Reagan announced was known as the Strategic Defense Initiative, or SDI. Most people know it by the name Star Wars, which was apparently coined by Senator Ted Kennedy and attributed to a Washington Post article. The third iteration of the actual Star Wars, Return of the Jedi, was released that same year. To be brief, SDI theoretically would have used space-based and land-based kinetic and laser interceptors that would, again, theoretically, shoot down incoming ICBMs. I'll let this super 1980s video explain more. Layered defense to protect the country from nuclear devastation. The first response. Space-based kinetic energy weapons fire high-speed projectiles from hypervelocity guns. Intercepting enemy missiles as they are boosted through the atmosphere. And here's my favorite part. Popped up into space. Earth-based nuclear-powered X-ray lasers fire their radioactive rays. Attack rays from land-based Exomer lasers are redirected by huge mirrors orbiting in space. This entire video is really worth a watch. I've put the link in the episode description if anyone is interested. But here's the main point. The technology was nowhere near ready in 1983. The technology is nowhere near ready now either, by the way. But even if President Reagan's plan did work, there was still the fundamental problem of simply incentivizing the Soviets to build more and more missiles. The irony in all of this is that President Reagan acknowledged this very problem, but still proposed SDI anyway. The president tonight said he understood there were dangers in his proposal. I clearly recognize that defensive systems have limitations and raise certain problems and ambiguities. If paired with offensive systems, they can be viewed as fostering an aggressive policy, and no one wants that. No one wants it, but the president tonight didn't make clear just why the Soviets should not view his proposal with alarm. But since the technology wasn't there, it didn't matter. The ABM Treaty stayed intact. The Soviet Union collapsed. The Cold War was over. In the 1990s and early 2000s, U.S.-Russian relations weren't ideal, but they were better. Some hawks, though, still dreamed of following through with President Reagan's vision. They proposed different missile defense programs that never came to fruition. And then 9-11 happened, and the messaging completely changed. Suddenly, the George W. Bush administration was arguing that they needed long-range missile defense, not for Russia, but for terrorists or rogue states like North Korea. But they couldn't actually deploy the system they wanted while the U.S. was in the ABM Treaty. So, today I have given formal notice to Russia, in accordance with the treaty, that the United States of America is withdrawing from this almost 30-year-old treaty. I have concluded the ABM treaty hinders our government's ability to develop ways to protect our people from future terrorists or rogue state missile attacks. There was a lot of opposition to this move. Critics feared that getting rid of the ABM treaty would only exacerbate Russian fears about our missile defenses, causing a new arms race in the long run and siphoning funds to a missile defense program with serious technical limitations. All of this, I would argue, ended up happening. Our executive director, former Congressman John Tierney, actually led the opposition to ABM withdrawal in the U.S. House of Representatives, and Joe Biden, then a senator from Delaware, led the opposition in the Senate. 
Ultimately, the withdrawal went through, and the Bush administration began aggressively developing a national missile defense system known as Ground-Based Mid-Course Defense, or GMD. Before we go further, I need to explain one more thing. When we're talking about GMD, we're talking about the only missile defense program dedicated to protecting the entire U.S. homeland from ICBMs. We're not, and this is critical, we're not talking about regional missile defense programs like Iron Dome, Aegis, or THAAD, all of which have better testing records but are designed for missiles that don't go as far and as fast as ICBMs. Okay, so back to GMD. The George W. Bush administration set an arbitrary deadline for its deployment in 2004, gave exceptions to the Missile Defense Agency so they could go around standard defense procurement rules, and they rushed the system out. Today, we have approximately 40 GMD interceptors spread between two bases in Alaska and California, with 20 more planned over the next several years. As it stands, the total cost of the program is estimated to be nearly $70 billion. But some lawmakers want to expand the number of interceptors to over 100, and the Trump administration's Missile Defense Review leaves this option open. The early rush to deploy a system, even if it didn't work, led to a ton of problems, and we're still dealing with those today. When the United States tries to expand military programs that don't work, what happens is all the money and attention goes into building more and more of the things that don't work. And so if you have an interceptor that is unreliable, that you can't depend on, like the current interceptor, all the money goes into building more of those and not into the research and development that might someday actually make it work. Since the beginning of the program, GMD has fully destroyed the test target missile 10 out of 19 times, a success rate of just over 50%. Since deployment in 2004, that record is 5 out of 11, or just under 50%. But even the abysmal test record doesn't tell the whole story. The test conditions that we've set up have been set up for success. There are no really challenging countermeasures. These are test conditions. They're not operationally realistic when it's scored by the Director of Operational Test and Evaluation. They're not scoring it as an operationally realistic test. That's Dr. Laura Grego, a senior scientist in the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. A PhD physicist and widely recognized expert on missile defense, she co-authored a landmark report on GMD in 2016 called Shielded from Oversight. I'll also leave that link in the episode description. It's not just that GMD has a poor test record. It's also that the tests themselves are highly scripted for success. The timing of the test and other information that no enemy would provide are known in advance. Some of that is unavoidable with tests, but other aspects of the tests make them extremely unrealistic. So, an ICBM has three generic phases in flight. The boost phase is the first few minutes from launch until it leaves the atmosphere and enters space. The mid-course phase is the longest part of the trajectory, about 20 to 25 minutes depending, that is the bulk of the time spent traveling in space. This is where the warhead separates from the missile and is powered by gravity. The final phase, the terminal phase, is the few minutes it takes the warhead to re-enter the atmosphere and reach its target. Because the mid-course phase gives the most amount of time, missile defenses have largely focused on trying to intercept missiles here. But this is also the phase where the offensive missile has the biggest advantage, because it can deploy what are called countermeasures. The most common countermeasure is simply known as a decoy. 
These decoys are deployed when the warhead has been separated from the missile in the mid-course phase and is traveling through space. And here's the thing, they often look exactly like the warhead. So how is the interceptor supposed to know which is the real warhead? What if there are 20 warheads coming and 200 decoys? This is called the discrimination problem. And thus far, no GMD test has included complex countermeasures or decoys. I stress the word complex here. That would be used to try to trick the interceptor. ICBM will take maybe 30 to 40 minutes to get from a place like North Korea to the United States. And almost all of that is in the vacuum of space. And this is where mid-course missile defense really has its biggest challenge. It's not getting hit to kill to work, and that's what we're still working on, getting that to work reliably. It's making sure that you can find the target from among credible decoys that your adversary might be including. The physics here are really fascinating because adversaries can use balloons. Yes, balloons to trick us. If we're both standing on the top of a building and you drop an anvil and I drop a feather, we know which one is going to hit the ground first, right? Our intuition works. It doesn't work that way in space because there's no air resistance. So two objects that are moving through space are going to move identically despite what their mass is when there's no air resistance to slow one down more than the other. So you can have a light decoy balloon that looks similar to your warhead and you'll have your warhead traveling with it and you can set that up so it's very difficult for the defense to figure out which is the fake decoy and which is the real warhead. You can make it so that the radars and the infrared sensors are going to have a very hard time distinguishing which is which and because these decoys can be really light you can include lots and lots of them. This, by the way, includes a North Korean ICBM. When you say uh, we have a defense against North Korea, it's really assuming that North Korea hasn't figured out how to make credible decoys. The National Intelligence Estimate in 1999, that's 20 years ago now, made the point that any country that could build intercontinental ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons would have the technology in hand to build credible decoys. So there's no good reason to imagine that North Korea couldn't figure out how to do this if they can figure out how to make ICBMs. Here's what's so interesting about the Trump administration's missile defense review. It simultaneously supports expanding GMD, but also recognizes the discrimination problem. How do we know? Because the review seemingly endorses new types of missile defenses that would try to shoot down a missile before it can deploy decoys. That would happen in the boost phase, those few minutes from the initial launch of a missile. How can you do that? In theory, I'll stress in theory, you could have space-based interceptors in orbit above the missile to shoot it down, or a plane flying close to the missile with a really fast interceptor aboard. The Missile Defense Review really likes these ideas. And hey, they sound fancy and cool, even if there are only, oh, I don't know, a million problems with them. Let's start with space. Once you understand how hard mid-course missile defense is and that you're going to have to figure out how to effectively deal with countermeasures like decoys, so you say, okay, well, how else could I do this? And that's a great driving force for people to look at boost phase defenses. But you're really trading one set of problems for another set of extremely difficult problems. Because the boost phase of a missile, especially for a long-range missile, is going to last three to five minutes, depending on the range and if it's solid or liquid-fueled but you don't have very much time in which to detect that it's launching 
get your interception method pointed in the right way and to make the decision to destroy the launching missile. So compared to tons of minutes, you have a few minutes. So what that means is that you have to be really close to that launching missile. The idea behind it is that you can get close enough to that launching missile because you will be on a satellite in space. And normally people think space, space so far away, but really lower Earth orbiting objects can be a few hundred kilometers away. So there would be these low Earth orbiting constellations of satellites ready to intercept this launching missile in those first few minutes of active launch. In classical mechanics, the closer an object is to the object it's orbiting, the faster it is going. So, the farther away a satellite is from Earth, the slower the satellite is going. This can be counterintuitive, but it's really, really important for understanding the challenges of a space-based missile defense program. To have a chance at intercepting a missile, the orbiting interceptors would have to be really close to Earth in what, as Laura explained, is known as low Earth orbit. But that close to Earth and the interceptors are traveling extremely fast. Being in space is an active endeavor. To be in orbit, you're actually moving quickly to stay into orbit or else you would just fall back to Earth. So satellites in low Earth orbits are traveling seven, seven and a half kilometers per second, like 30 times the speed of a jet. So you can imagine that as soon as your interceptor that you're going to try to use was in place over the launch site, when the launching is happening, it'll be gone again. So in order to have something at the right place and the right time, you're going to need a lot of them in space. To have maybe one or two interceptors in space near enough to intercept a single missile in North Korea, or maybe a few, you would need hundreds of interceptors. Hundreds of interceptors for a few missiles? Not a great ratio. Wait, how much would that cost? So that's extremely expensive. The National Academies looked at this in their report in 2012 called Making Sense of Missile Defense, and they estimated you'd need 650 or more orbiting interceptors, which would cost more than $300 billion, and that was in 2010 dollars, just to target a couple of North Korean missiles. They called it an austere capability. And that's not all. Even if we spent that colossal amount and had something in orbit, it could still be easily defeated. You can very quickly overwhelm it. If that whole constellation is only good for one or two missiles, clearly the thing that you would do to render it ineffective is to launch more than that or to attack those low-Earth orbiting interceptors with cheaper, shorter-range missiles, direct ascent anti-satellite weapons. You start to pick apart the constellation before you launch your ICBM. So it's very easy to make it not very useful. The offense definitely has the advantage in that sense. So what's the conclusion here? Space-based missile defense is really just a bad idea. But hey, what about using a plane to do it? The Missile Defense Review proposes a study on the feasibility of the F-35 fighter aircraft being used. Well... That turns out to be even tougher. You don't have three to five minutes if you're going to be using an aircraft and an air-to-air missile because air-to-air missiles launched by something like the F-35, they need atmosphere to aerodynamically maneuver. So you have to catch that missile as it's launching before it gets high enough that you don't have sensible atmosphere anymore. And that's around 30 kilometers altitude. Rather than having three to five minutes, you have more like one minute to a minute and a half. And so essentially you'd have to be 
inside the country already, and you'd have to basically know where the launching missiles are before they launch. So that's not a realistic proposal for sort of strategic missile defense. That's not a solution to the problem. There are some other problems with this, too. How would it work with the sensors, radars, and other detectors? To do that, the F-35s would have to be stationed near enough to the place where the missiles are launched from so that they could get there in time or launch missiles that they were carrying that could get there in time. So that would mean you'd need squadrons of F-35s orbiting over the site that you're trying to defend against. And that, of course, involves invading the country you're talking about. Okay, one more thing about the missile defense review. And this doesn't involve space or airplanes, I promise. It goes back to GMD. For some years now, a handful of congressional lawmakers have argued that the GMD interceptors in Alaska and California aren't enough. They want more interceptors, and some want a new site on the East Coast or in the Midwest of the United States. They argue that if Iran fired an ICBM, the interceptors on the West Coast wouldn't be able to intercept it. So they've been using legislation to get the Missile Defense Agency to identify potential East Coast sites. As of March 2019, it's been narrowed to three potential sites in Michigan, Ohio, and New York. The funny thing about this is that, at least by what we can tell, the Missile Defense Agency isn't too enthusiastic about this proposal. But the Missile Defense Review still left the option open for this. Here's the problem. We get the sense of East and West, and politically, we have East and West, but grab a globe instead of a projected map. Or if you use Google Earth, you can see, oh, yeah, actually, probably the fastest way is to kind of come up north. So according to the Pentagon, most of the interceptors, which are in Alaska, are supposed to be able to handle threats from North Korea or Iran. Iran doesn't have an ICBM. It doesn't clearly even have an ICBM program. It has a space launch program, which has some technical similarities, but they're not the same thing. A nuclear-armed Iranian ICBM is not an urgent problem. So I'm not sure what the third site really was meant to do in that sense. So, just to be clear, a third GMD site on the East Coast or in the Midwest doesn't make sense because, one, look at a globe, not a flat map, but a globe. ICBMs don't generally travel east to west, by far the shortest point from Russia, China, North Korea, or Iran to the United States is to fire roughly north, over the Arctic. And in theory, the interceptors in California and Alaska cover that trajectory already. Two, even if ICBMs did work like that, Iran doesn't have an ICBM. I repeat, Iran doesn't have an ICBM. Oh, and three, if lawmakers want to spend money on GMD, they should consider using funds to attempt to make the interceptors better, not expanding the program to a new, unnecessary location, or expand it in general, without first proving that it works. made it this far, you've probably realized that we're pretty skeptical of the National Missile Defense Program here at the center. But you might be asking, even if GMD doesn't really work, isn't having something better than nothing? The answer is not necessarily. First, it's already a major problem if decision makers are overconfident in the ability of GMD. You heard President Trump earlier say that he believes we can shoot down a missile 97% of the time. Some other lawmakers have similar overconfidence. Why is this dangerous? 
If you believe our missile defenses are effective, you can just sit back and not worry, right? They're never going to get here. They're never going to hit us. And so you wouldn't think about how you would have to respond. And worse still, you wouldn't think that you needed to do anything for arms control to reduce and eliminate all those offensive weapons that both sides have. If it were just a waste of money, that's a separate issue. But my concern with a program like the GMD system, which doesn't work very well, in which we have this endorsement to buy more of it, is this sense of false security and this idea that it works when it doesn't. The test results are there and everybody really, who should know, really does know. But when you have the president saying it should work 97% of the time, you really do want to make sure that you're not creating a false sense of security. The American people people could be forgiven for expecting that it does work because we're spending so much money on it. And it's existed for 15 years now. So you would expect that it works when yet it clearly hasn't been proven to. So this tension between building more of something that doesn't work isn't just wasted money. It isn't just poor management and oversight. It can have serious consequences. Essentially, the overconfidence could actually incentivize really poor decision making. For example, if President Trump thinks we can shoot down a North Korean ICBM, no problem, he wouldn't be as concerned about the consequences of, say, attacking North Korea, because it's possible that in his mind, we can attack them and nothing will happen to us. That's why being clear about the facts is so important. And second, we're talking about defending against a nuclear attack. Millions of lives would likely be lost in even a so-called limited attack. To be frank, deploying a failing system to attempt to thwart the attack makes little, if any, difference to not having any system at all. And every single dollar spent expanding GMD, without first proving that the system actually works, is a dollar not spent on other effective security and diplomatic programs that have been proven to keep us safe. Here's the bottom line. We're not going to missile defense our way out of being vulnerable to nuclear attack. Not from Russia, not from China, and not from North Korea. The only way to actually reduce the nuclear threat is to reduce or eliminate the actual nuclear weapons and missiles themselves. We've been doing this through diplomacy and nuclear arms control for decades. And since the current state of nuclear arms control isn't great, it's now absolutely critical that we double down on the need for diplomacy and hopefully the continuation or expansion of nuclear arms control agreements with other nuclear armed countries. The consequences of not doing so are simply too great to resort to indulging in a technological fantasy. About two years ago, I was on a long road trip, somewhere near Charlotte, North Carolina, when I came up with the initial idea for this podcast. There were already a few nuclear podcasts, but they were quite technical and lengthy. Don't get me wrong, these podcasts are great, especially for those of us who work on nuclear issues every single day and care about every single detail. But I wanted to create something just a bit more accessible. Nearly 20 episodes later, and it's bittersweet for me to say that this will be the last Nukes of Hazard episode I'll produce. While I'm moving on to a different position here in D.C., I can't thank this organization and all of my colleagues here enough. Thank you to John Tierney, a former congressman and our executive director, who supported my initial idea from the very beginning and gave me free artistic and creative reign. 
Thank you to Alex Bell, a former State Department official and our senior policy director, for always supporting my work and editing the lengthy scripts that always took me forever to write. Thank you to Hazel Correa, our former communications director, who also always supported my work on this podcast and who I imagine has brought in all of our 14 listens from the Republic of Macedonia, or shall I say, the Republic of North Macedonia. Thank you to Anna Schumann, our current communications director, for supporting my work, being a great office mate, and identifying a fantastic artist to design our logo. And thank you to everyone else here, or formerly here, who I've worked with for a long time. Aaron Connolly, John Isaacs, Kane Farmer, Khalil Kater, Sara Kuchisfahani, Phil Coyle, and so many others in the wider community. And I suppose I'll leave the biggest thank you to Greg Tarrant, a former fellow policy analyst here who left in 2017 for Stanford Law School. Greg's the reason I came to the center in the first place, and he was a respected colleague throughout the nuclear community. But there's one thing I can't thank him for. This podcast. When I first proposed the idea, he told me, half-jokingly, that I'd be lucky if I ever got 100 listens. When he stopped back into our office recently, I thoroughly enjoyed showing him that we've received just 107 listens from listeners in Japan, and approaching 20,000 listens in total from listeners in well over 50 countries. But in all seriousness, thank you, Greg, for bringing me aboard and being such a great colleague and friend. Before I sign off, I want to also thank all of those I've interviewed for the podcast, members of Congress, former ambassadors, and experts like Phil and Laura. You've all been incredible contributors, and I could not have completed a single episode without you. And thank you for listening. While this is my last podcast, Nukes of Hazard isn't going anywhere. The next episodes might sound a bit different, but knowing the type of talent already here and the talent coming soon, they'll likely be even better and more engaging. So please, don't go anywhere, because in all honesty, this podcast has just begun.